and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on and then we teleport back to today to talk to real experts about how that world we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode we're starting in the year 2073. Hey guys, it's Melissa Bromery here, and you're watching my YouTube channel, Pollination Nation. If you like what you see, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. You can click the button right here. Okay, onto the video. Today, we're gonna review hand pollination of vanilla planifolia. Ta-da! Right, so normally this plant, like every plant we've talked about on this channel, would be pollinated by bees, but Womp womp, no more bees. So here we are, pollinating. It's fun and also worth it if you want vanilla, which I bet you do. So the vanilla planifolia is actually a type of orchid, which is very cool. See how pretty it is? One cool thing about vanilla plants is that they're orchids, but they actually grow as vines. So you see how my little guy here is on this stick and it's all viney? That's the normal way that it grows. Another cool thing about vanilla flowers is that each flower only opens for one day. One day! So you miss it, you're gonna have to wait another 364 days. That's no good. So keep an eye on this bad boy. Okay, so here's what you're gonna need for this pollination situation. A toothpick. That's it. It's so easy. Who needs bees? Not us. We've got our handy toothpick. Hey there, little buddy. Ready to pollinate? Great. So back in the day, this pollination would have been done by a bee called the Melipona bee. We don't have those anymore. So we're stuck with our handy little toothpick right here. I put little wings on it just to make the flower, you know, feel better. See flower, everything is okay. You've got me. What you do first is pull this flower back here and yeah, you're gonna have to rip the flower a little. Sorry, buddy. So pull this part back. Okay, so today's episode is about a world without bees. And when most people think of a future without bees, they think of honeybees. Because honeybees are the ones that we can really easily point to as direct drivers of our economy, our food system, and more. Plus, people have been really worried about honeybees ever since they started abandoning their hives in 2006, a phenomenon that was eventually dubbed colony collapse disorder. So if you Google bee extinction, you actually get a lot of predictions for what would happen if honeybees went extinct. And those predictions are pretty dire. They usually start with a list of all of the products that we'd no longer get to enjoy. Many fruits and vegetables will simply stop growing. Carrots, apples, lemons, onions, melons, Brazil nuts. Almonds, apples, avocados, cashews, blueberries, grapes, peaches, peppers, strawberries, tangerines, walnuts, watermelons. Apples, citrus fruits, asparagus, and soybeans. And also, you can say goodbye to any cotton clothes you have. And probably worst of all, coffee. Entire food chains and webs may be at risk. And then a lot of them get kind of apocalyptic. 
The cost of food will skyrocket. A monetary loss of over $14 billion. More than $15 billion. $30 billion a year. $200 billion. Malnutrition will be a huge problem. There'll be a possible worldwide economic crash. Famines throughout the world. It's thought a world without bees just couldn't sustain over 7 billion people. Humanity would be next. When you start looking into bee extinction, you often come across this thing that Einstein apparently once said. Quote, if the bee disappeared off the face of the earth, man would only have four years left to live. Except Einstein almost certainly never said that. Uh, this is a complete myth. I mean, Einstein never spoke about bees. This is Marcelo Eisen. Okay. I am a, an ecologist, a researcher, a scientist, and also a university professor. And I am based in uh, the city of Bariloche in northwestern Patagonia, uh, surrounded by a beautiful landscape of mountains, glacial lakes, and very beautiful forests. Marcelo studies the ways that pollinators, like bees, interact with plants that need to be pollinated. And a couple of years ago, he started getting frustrated with some of the numbers that were constantly thrown around when it came to the importance of honeybees. Nearly every paper seemed to start with the same little factoid. The start of every paper on pollination services or about pollination uh, started saying that bees are responsible, responsible for the production of one third of our food supply. Saying that without bees, uh, agricultural production would be reduced by one third. The problem is that Marcelo didn't think that that was exactly right. Even, you know, within the scientific communities, we have our own myth. And that was one of those. You see, the thing about those numbers that you heard earlier is that they ignore a really important fact about plants and pollination. One problem with that estimate is that it doesn't recognize the partial dependence of many on bees of many of many of those crops. That estimate is based on the assumption that without bees, those crops won't produce anything. Without bees, the logic goes, these plants wouldn't be able to reproduce at all, and they would stop producing anything and die. But that's not true. Many plants and many plant species, including many crops, produce uh, seeds and fruits without uh, being visited by pollinators, by this process of self-pollination. Almost all of the plants that bees pollinate can actually pollinate themselves when there aren't bees around. So it's not true that things like cotton and apples and avocados would all just die out without bees. They simply would be less efficient crops. They won't maximize the crop production without pollinators. And Marcelo wanted to figure out just how much less efficient they would be. To do that, he looked at data on the types of crops all around the world and to what extent those crops were reliant on pollinators. So you can, you know, multiply how much each of those crops produce times the degree of dependence of, of pollinators that can range from 0% to 100%, and you will get an estimate that without any bees on the wall, food production would be decreased by just 6%, 5%. So without honeybees, global food production is reduced by 5 or 6%. Obviously, that's still a big impact, since global agriculture is worth billions and billions of dollars. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you will never see another avocado or a pair of jeans in the store again. 
It's obviously not good, but it's also not the same thing as mass crop extinction, famine, and the end of humanity. But one thing that Marcelo found that I thought was really interesting is that if the bees went extinct in, say, 20 years, the impact could actually be a lot bigger. Remember that Marcelo scored crops on a scale of 0 to 100, where 0 is not dependent on pollinators at all, and 100 is totally dependent on pollinators. It turns out that farmers are currently moving more and more to the crops that are higher on that scale, more dependent on pollinators. There is an increasing demand for those crops, crops that depend on on pollinators, let's say apples, mangoes, pears, even things like canola, oil palm, all those crops depend on pollinators. So in the last 50 years, the total agricultural area or the land devoted to agriculture has increased by 30% during the last 50 years. And most of those land was devoted to the cultivation of this kind of crops. So if things keep going this way, the impact of a bee extinction would actually get worse and worse. But even then, Marcelo isn't actually worried about bees going extinct and causing us all to starve. He's actually more worried that we're going to destroy all of our land by planting these vast fields of crops that rely on bees. The problem is not the starvation of humanity, the problem is environmental cause. I mean, that you are obliged to cultivate more and more and more to get to, uh, to match a demand for these kind of crops. The good news is that even though honeybees are certainly having a little bit of trouble right now, there's actually no real danger that they will go extinct. Honeybees, they're not going to go extinct. We, the beekeepers are really good at raising more bees. They can make more honeybees happen. That's Elaine Evans, a bee researcher at the University of Minnesota, and we're going to hear more from her about the bees that you should be worried about after the break. But first, a word from our sponsors. So this episode is about a world free of bees, and we've covered what might happen if we lost honeybees. But what about the rest of the bees out there? Most people just are are aware of honeybees, and a lot of people, actually, when they close their eyes and picture a bee, a lot of times they picture, you know, the big, really fuzzy ones like like bumblebees. But um, those are just a couple different kinds of bees and um, account for, for a pretty small number of the total species of, the, of bees in the world. This is Elaine Evans again. You heard her just before the break. I am an extension educator and bee researcher at the University of Minnesota. So I work in the bee lab and I work on um, a variety of things around bee diversity. So we have around 20,000 different kinds of bees in the world. And those 20,000 kinds of bees are incredibly diverse. And so most of them are not social, living in a nest with queens and workers. Most of them are actually solitary and um, all kinds of different sizes and shapes and colors. There's green metallic ones. There's ones that aren't even fuzzy, like you all think bees should be. And they range from... Teeny tiny bees, half the size of a grain of rice, you would barely see them, to maybe an inch. I think a big fat bumblebee or something along those lines. This is Paige Embry, and she's the author of a book called Our Native Bees, North America's Endangered Pollinators and the Fight to Save Them. They are spread out over nine families. So we put this label on this group of animals that's actually amazingly diverse. Um, It's... 
you know, a little bit like putting a bear and an otter in the same category to sort of put all the bees in the same category, taxonomically speaking. Both Paige and Elaine are drawn to bees that aren't the standard honeybee. So this is the most important question. What is your favorite bee? Do I have a favorite bee? I'm, I'm fond of uh, Melisodes uh, because they're, I don't know, they're sort of fat and friendly looking and, and a little less common than bumblebees. Everybody likes bumblebees and I like bumblebees as well. I like some of the like metallic green bees because they're just sort of, again, not what you think of when you think of a bee. And there's some little bees in the desert southwest, teeny, smaller than a grain of rice, that sort of look like nothing until you look at them under the microscope. And then they're often this amazing enameled yellow and black. And it's, they're beautiful. That's always, it's a little bit hard for me to pick a favorite. (laughs) There's a bumblebee that we have here called Bombus fervidus. I'm bad with common names, so I never remember the common name. Uh, I looked it up. It is the golden northern bumblebee or yellow bumblebee. There you go. But um, this is a a bumblebee that is almost all yellow. It's also a little bit on the the mean side from its name, Fervidus. It's named that because it's so um, protective of its nest and can be be really mean and aggressive. I don't know why that that, that appeals to me, but (laughs) I like things that can stand up for themselves. And they are also um, one of the bees that we're concerned about that um, in some areas doesn't seem to be doing as, as well as it used to be. Honeybees might get all the attention, but these other less popular bees are actually far more vulnerable to extinction. Many of these bees have tiny habitats that are quickly shrinking, and some of them might disappear before scientists even really see the warning signs. Because it turns out that scientists don't have a great handle on how a lot of bee species are even doing, because they don't have any baseline data to know what the population used to be. Honeybees, we know a lot about how they're doing because we because they're mostly managed they a lot of them just live in these boxes and you can go and open up the boxes and look in there and see how they're doing. We don't have that option with most of the other 20,000 species of bees that are out there. Um, it's really hard to find their nests. We don't even have them all described and knowing exactly where they are. So we know a lot less about those bees. Often, people only have their own anecdotal evidence to point to when it suddenly seems like there are fewer bees than there used to be. I live in the the Twin Cities here in Minnesota, and this is one of the places where we used to have, there was a bee that used to be very common, the rusty patch bumblebee, and then around the year 2000, it just, I just stopped seeing it. If you are like me, you have probably never heard of the rusty patch bumblebee. They are mostly black and yellow. So on the, the abdomen of the bee, the first couple segments are yellow and then the rest is black. And in that second yellow segment on their abdomen, there's a, a part in the middle that's just kind of this little swoop that is rusty brown color that really kind of varies. Sometimes it looks orangish. Sometimes it's just kind of a little bit darker To try and measure how many rusty patch bees there are, Elaine trains people on how to identify and count them. So I started doing surveys 11 years ago, um, using volunteers to come out with the idea to look for these 
bees, these bumblebees, but to also keep track of the other species of bumblebees so that I can get some idea of how they're doing as well. Now, this might seem easy, but when you think about it, counting bees is really hard. First, you have to be able to identify the species of a bee as it's flying around. Then you have to make sure that you aren't counting the same bee more than once, which honestly seems kind of impossible to me. But there is apparently a method. It's actually pretty simple to, once you get used to it, to, to stick a little dab of paint onto the thorax of a bumblebee. And I do that so that I make sure I'm not counting the bees twice. So when I return to these sites, and even that same day, we'll mark, you know, 100 bees. And the, one of the really cool things when you, when you mark them, a lot of people think, oh, this bee is going to get mad at you. You're holding it tight and, and putting paint on it. But as soon as they leave my net, they just zip back, often just right back to the flower where they were. So when we're surveying that day, we'll just start immediately seeing lots of the marked bees because they're just right back on the flowers, um, back to drinking nectar and collecting pollen like they were before I harassed them. Using these surveys, Elaine can say with certainty that the rusty patch bumblebee's population really has declined. And it's not alone. Lots of bumblebee species are struggling. We really know the most about bumblebees. And for those, we know that it's roughly one out of every three species of bumblebee worldwide that is in decline compared to how they were doing, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So Elaine knows that bumblebees are in trouble. But when you get out past bumblebees, well, we really know very little about the overall health of bee species. In fact, we've completely lost track of bees in the past. Take, for example, an Indonesian bee described by the famed naturalist Alfred Russell Wallace. Wallace discovered the bee in 1858, and it was given the common name Wallace's Giant Bee. And it is giant. Females, which in this species are bigger than the males, can get to be an inch and a half long. In fact, Wallace's Giant Bee is the world's largest living bee. And for about 100 years, nobody saw one. They thought it had gone extinct. But then, in 1981, they figured out where the bees nest, and they found them again. Remember, this is literally the world's largest bee, and they thought it was extinct for a hundred years because nobody could find it. As far as scientists know, no bee species has gone extinct in modern times. But there are a few species that people suspect might either be on the brink or already gone. In the United States, there are four or five bee species that nobody has seen for years. One of them is a bee called the Franklin's bumblebee. The bumblebee that seems like it may have gone extinct. And when I asked the person who knows the most about Franklin's bumblebee, it's like, so where do they like to nest? And he's like, I oh, don't really know for sure. That person that Paige is talking about, who knows the most about Franklin's bumblebees, is a guy named Robin Thorpe. So he went up there in the mid-1990s and started doing his survey and found plenty of Franklin's bumblebees along with a whole array of other bumblebees. So he started going out, I think in 1997, and he quickly started seeing declines, but at first didn't think anything of it because bee numbers vacillate again. You know, he's out there for a few days a year. You know, maybe it was a bad day. So you don't think anything of it when one year the bees are bad. But in 2006, he saw the last known Franklin's bumblebee. Nobody else has seen one ever since. It's possible that the Franklin's bumblebee is still out there. And Robin is still looking. He still goes out every year and looks. 
several times a year in a variety of places where Frank, Franklin's bumblebee has historically lived. And, you know, he still harbors in his heart the hope that he will find a Franklin's. Maybe one day Robin will find another one. Or maybe they're extinct. Nobody really knows. And if they are extinct, the impact will probably be subtle. Without the Franklin's bumblebee, the local plants will probably be just fine. There's a, a, a number of species of bumblebees that live in that area. And bumblebees are generalist bees, so they will um, forage on lots of different kinds of plants. They're not like, you know, there are certain bees that it's like, I only forage on certain kinds of plants. And occasionally there, you'll have something that it's like, this plant relies on this particular bee and this bee reply, relies on this particular plant. That's not how it works for bumblebees. They're, they're easygoing when it comes to um, their food requirements. And so there's lots of other bees that can do what Franklin's bumblebee did. Some bees have much tighter relationships with the plants that they pollinate. But in most cases, there are other animals that pollinate those plants, too. Losing native bees would mean losing some of the best pollinators, but it wouldn't mean losing pollination altogether. There's thousands of other animals out there that pollinate as well, so might something else evolve pretty quickly to sort of take over that role? I don't know. When it comes to eliminating an entire set of animals from a vast array of ecosystems across the world, it's really hard to predict what might happen. We covered this same thing in the mosquito episode back in season two. Ecosystems and food webs are really complicated, and often we don't fully understand what relies on what and when and how. Bees are clearly important in the ecosystem. They're food for other stuff, they're part of an intricate web of pollination. Losing them might have weird, unintended consequences. But it's kind of hard to say what they might be specifically. So I was trying to think of some odd consequences of a bee extinction, and I came up with a weird idea that you are just going to have to indulge me on here. Bees are very important animals, yes, that is definitely true, but they are also found in logos. And that got me thinking, what happens if the animal in your logo goes extinct? So I called up a guy named Dean Yeagle. He's an illustrator, and he designed a bee that you're probably quite familiar with. And one of the first things I ever did in animation was to design the Cheerios bee. Yep, the Honey Nut Cheerios bee. Where's that noise? Go away! Who's there? Ooh, the taste of nuts and honey, Mr. Scrooge? Ah! Humble. I did it first as a sort of uh, more bee-like looking creature. You had big compound eyes and so forth, no nose, you know. Uh, now he he ended up looking like uh, Elmer Fudd in a bee suit, you know, a much more human-looking creature. When Dean designed the little bee in the 1970s, he had no clue it would still be iconic today. I was paid for, you know, two hours' work or whatever it took me, uh, and that's it. So <laughs> for 40 years, he's been going along without me getting any honey from him. So I asked him, if your mascot goes extinct, should you keep using it? Well, the bee represents uh, honey nut Cheerios in particular. So um, he's not a Cheerios overall. He's honey nut Cheerios. And if there are no bees, there's no honey. And if there's no honey, there's no honey nut Cheerios at all. So I guess the bee would be gone in any case. Cheerios actually did make a run of Honey Nut Cheerio boxes where the bee had disappeared to raise awareness about colony collapse disorder. But if bees truly went extinct and General Mills found a way to sweeten their Honey Nut Cheerios without real honey, 
Dean thinks they'd have to find a new mascot. He would have to go, you you know, unless he wanted to use a ghost bee or something. (laughs) And bees don't have any bones, so you couldn't use a skeleton bee. I'm just trying to think of all the horrible possibilities. I don't know. I mean, personally, I would think it would be just kind of sad. You know, you don't want people looking at the box of cereal and thinking, oh, my God, it's gone. We used to be have these wonderful animals, and now they're gone. And you don't want to be depressed when you're looking for a breakfast cereal. I have to agree with Dean. I generally want to wait until after breakfast to get depressed about how humans are destroying the planet. Okay, that's all for this episode. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. The voice from our future intro to this episode was Mike Rugnetta. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. I do keep track of all of them. I have a big document on my computer, and you'll hear some of them in the future, I promise. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me at info at flashforwardpod.com. And if you're right, I will send you something cool. Some of you have gotten both of the prizes that I offer, and I am working on new prizes, I promise. And if you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways you can do that. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more information about how to give. And if giving money is not in the cards for you, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review or just tell a friend about us. That actually really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.